Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, this is David Law, and welcome to the Tennis Podcast. Every week, a tennis podcast will talk about what's happening in the sport, include predictions and opinions, anecdotes that show my age, and most importantly, a big interview with someone from inside the sport of tennis. To kick us off in style, we'll be speaking to the former world number one, Carlos Moya, right here on the Tennis Podcast. So who am I and who have I got with me for the next 40 minutes or so, apart from Carlos Moya, who'll be coming up later? Well, I'm David Law. I've been working in tennis for what most of the players would probably say is about half a century. It certainly feels like that sometimes when I look in the mirror and see the grey hair. Somebody a lot younger than me is with me at the moment. It's Catherine Whitaker. Catherine, Hello. how are you? I'm very well, thanks. Good. Catherine's worked with me on the tennis tour for the last five years. She travels the world on the ATP Champions Tour. And what was the first match you ever remember, Catherine? First match ever? Gosh, it was such a long time ago, it's difficult to say. Probably 1992 Wimbledon. Uh, I remember my family eagerly anticipating whether Andre Agassi would walk onto court wearing white. I remember the... 1991 it was, yeah. 1991. That's right. The year before he won it. And then I remember him winning it in 1992, beating Ivan in the final. I remember that final and I remember... All of my family sharing in the heartache of, of Goran Ivanovic, which was then to continue for the rest of the uh, the decade. So course. nobody was supporting Andre Agassi? They were, they were, but, you know, compassionate people, you, you couldn't help but but uh, have a, a large degree of sympathy for Goran as well. Let's just get this clear. Who were you supporting? I, I was too too young, I think, to have any particular allegiances. I was just annoyed. Don't get out of it. Come on, who were you supporting? I did like the long hair of Agassi. That, right. you know, as a five-year-old, six-year-old, six-year-old, I would have been six. The the long hair and the slightly wacky appearance did, did appeal to my more uh, more crazy nature at that age, let's say. Did you have a cap with a ponytail poking out the back? I did, but I was a six-year-old girl, so it was... That was allowed. <laughs> it was absolutely okay for me. Right, okay. So 1992, where was I in 1992? Well, I was. Uh, I watched that match as well, and I remember supporting every opponent that Agassi played during that run to the title. I didn't like him at all, not one bit. Goodness. I supported Boris Becker in the quarterfinals against Agassi. Didn't happen. Supported John McEnroe in the semifinals. Lost in straight sets. Didn't happen. But Goran Ivanovic had served 200 aces during the course of that week. There was no way that anybody could break this guy's serve. That is how impressive Agassi was, isn't it? 
It, oh, he was amazing. Absolutely amazing, his return of serve. I mean, I can't say that I appreciated it on that level at that age, but I've, I've watched that match back, actually, and uh, and, and he was just, just incredible. He was, yes. I mean, he, he he's somebody who, although I was supporting all of his opponents during that run, I actually got to know him a little bit uh, when, when I joined the ATP circuit as a communications manager many, many years ago. We're talking decades, it feels like, anyway. Um, and uh, and he was a really, really decent guy. A lot of people have got different opinions of Agassi, but there's no question about what he's achieved in life since then i mean the the school that he's built in in las vegas is is quite extraordinary one of the uh, one of the guests we'll be having on the tennis podcast over the next few weeks richard evans one of our great greatest tennis broadcasters and journalists actually took a trip out there and and just couldn't say enough about how how wonderful it is what 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 agassi has put together he said if if i was sending my child to to a school i would i would i would want to get him into that school if i wow. possibly could and yet i couldn't because the rules wouldn't allow it because it's for for disadvantaged people in inner city areas and and I think that that's that's really something and they are hands on with it day to day aren't they they that's don't right. just put their names to it and then let somebody else run it they're there every single day aren't they that's right no it's 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 fantastic so your first tennis match was 1992 the Wimbledon final Andre Agassi winning the title and who who can believe that that's 20 years now he's going to celebrate his 20th anniversary I think he's going to be there this year at Wimbledon too is he really yeah. that would be quite something it will and uh, of course uh, in your role on the ATP Champions Tour you've got to know Goran Ivanisevic I have has it ever come up Wimbledon finals in general have come up a few times I think they live long in Goran's memory one one in particular, obviously, but uh, I don't think the hurt of the uh, three that preceded that one will ever be erased for, for Goran. Oh, I don't know about that. If you think, I mean, I, I, I take your point. If he, if he had lost that Wimbledon final against Pat Rafter, what is it, 11 years ago now, I genuinely fear for the health of Goran Ivanisevic to this day. I, I, I don't know whether he'd even still be here. I know that sounds dramatic, but that's how how desperate he was. And of course, he'd lost three finals, as you say. He he was just he. I remember two weeks before we we, we were at Queens, and he had a he had a first round loss to an Italian, Christian Karate, and. I remember bringing him into a press conference after the match. That was my job in those days, and. He basically had about two journalists there to speak to him. Nobody was interested in Goran Ivanisevic mm. anymore. Nobody thought this guy could ever do anything. I don't think even he thought he could do it anymore. And and after that, he he, th- he found it funny. He was laughing when we came out of that press conference. Two weeks later, came into Wimbledon. Something happened to him. And 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 you know, look at the guys he beat: Marek Safin, Greg Rosetsky, Tim Andy Henman, Roddick. Andy Roddick. And then he eventually beat Pat Rafter in the final. Absolutely incredible story. And the rest is history. And I've never admitted to him that I was supporting Pat Rafter in that final. Well, I, I do have Goran's number here. And after this podcast is finished, that is what I'm going to be letting him know. Because you've been leading him along, making you th- him think that you're his, he's your favourite player. And look what happened. You were supporting Pat Rafter in that final. That is just disgraceful. It's a lady's prerogative to change her mind. Oh, OK. All right. Well, listen... The French Open draw has just come out a few hours ago, so um, I think we should have a bit of a look of it before we uh, get on to speaking to Carlos Moya here on the Tennis Podcast, um, the second Grand Slam tournament of 2012. And, you know, it's a, I, I love the clay court season. You, you see such a different type of tennis, don't you? The sliding and the, and the rallies and the, and the chess-like 
attitude that players have to have to have towards it. And now with these t top four players in the world, no idea who's going to come out on top at all. Let's just have a little look at the uh, the, the runs that they've got. What 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 catches your your, your eye immediately, Catherine? Yeah. Because the, the the semi-finals, which halves of the draw are they in first of all? Well, as is tradition, uh, so it seems. Andy Murray is in Rafa Nadal's half of the draw, so they would theoretically meet in the semi-finals, leaving uh, Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer to meet in the uh, in the top half, which it would be a mirror image of last year's semi-finals, of course. First time Djokovic had lost a match all year long, and it was to the great Roger Federer. That was one of the memories of the year for me. Absolutely, and it's still that was the last Grand Slam match that Djokovic lost still yeah, so I mean, no, could, nobody's beaten him in a slam since that's then. right and he so he could basically hold all four grand slam titles in a couple of weeks from now which nobody's done since Rod Laver I believe nobody's held them simultaneously no and goodness knows if he went on to win. Apart the from Serena Williams, I suppose on the on the women's side, Serena Slam, the Novak Slam, we're going to have to come up with some sort no, of catchy we're have to do line, aren't than we? That, I think. So uh, I think I'm struggling at the moment. The if you've got any there. ideas, do send us uh, a tweet on Twitter. We're at at tennis podcast. If you've got any idea what we can call the Novak Djokovic clean sweep, if he manages to win the lot. Big so, if, though. Big if. Oh, you think so? Well, there's Mr. Rafa Nadal going for a, a, a record seventh title. I'd call that a big, big if standing it's in his way. a bit of a problem, isn't it's it? It's a bit of a problem, yeah. And yeah. actually, he's turned the tables a bit, hasn't he? Because Djokovic, of course, last year won all of their matchups, every last one, including a couple on clay, which is mind-boggling, really, to most of us. Um, but as you say, this year they've played twice in Monte Carlo and, uh, and also in Rome recently, and Nadal won them both. But what's interesting is that last year we never got, we'll never know whether if Djokovic had reached the French Open final, whether Rafa would have beaten him on that occasion or whether the form going into that match from the rest of the clay court season in Rome and in Madrid would have would have carried through. It, it would be interesting to have a sliding doors uh, yeah. and, and know what would have happened last year. Obviously this year we've got Rafa coming on, out on top in uh, in Rome and in uh, Monte Carlo, so things are a bit different this year. But I mean, both men—they just keep—they just keep defying all the odds, defying all expectations. I, I think it would be a brave man to bet against either of them, really. Well, you've got to bet against one of them, haven't you? Well, absolutely. They're not going to both win. They're not going to both on. win. Who's going to win? I would put my money on Rafa if I had to make a bet. Okay. I think that's, uh, you know, I think it's difficult to argue against him at the moment, isn't it? Because, you know, it, it is a, uh, something true that that you say that if they'd have played in the final last year, what would have happened? Well, I don't think Nadal was playing the sort of tennis that last no. year that he's playing this year. I agree. Um, so I think even if Djokovic had got there, he would have had more chance last year. I think he was playing better tennis too. Um, but at the moment... There is, there is a clear difference between the two in terms of levels on clay. But let's have a look at their, their draws. You know, they've got to get there first, haven't they? They're in opposite halves of the draw. Absolutely. So who's Djokovic? What's his, his road to the semifinals where Roger Federer could await? Who's, who's Djokovic going to come up against on the run? The quarterfinal is an interesting one, isn't it? Because very difficult to, to work out who, who Djokovic is likely to face there. Joe Wilfred Songa, Gilles Simon, Stanislas Wawrinka are all in there. Yeah, two Frenchmen, so um, neither of them has particular home advantage. I mean, Songa, obviously, the crowd, I mean, crowds all over the world get behind him, but uh, on the Philippe Chatrier court in, uh, in Paris, it's like having... Uh, 
an extra shot on your armory, isn't it? Having that behind you, and he is the master of uh, of conducting a crowd, um, and he also is the master of producing something special um, in a special match. So again, that's one that I don't that I just don't think Djokovic would be looking forward to that matchup. There is that. Yannick Noah quality that he has about Absolutely. him, that swashbuckling, athletic, sort of everybody come with me, I'm going over the top kind of attitude yeah, that he it's, has. It's charisma, isn't it? It's it's yeah. chariz- it's a sort of charisma that somehow only Frenchmen seem to seem to be able to pull off as well. <laughs> and, and I mean, if he manages to get through to the quarters, you know, you wouldn't write him off against Djokovic. You wouldn't write him off. Let's let's go down the, the list a, bit, a little bit. Roger Federer would be the semi-final opponent for Djokovic if they got that far. It's the quarter-final, really, that, that really is. stands out. It'll either be, most likely, Juan Martín del Potro or Thomas Burdich for Roger Federer in the quarter-finals. That's a tasty one, isn't it? You've got to like the look of that. I, I think, think Del Potro will, will will come through that. Yeah, I think Del Potro is due to do something in a Grand Slam. Um, he's looking for the big stage, and I think he's ready. I think he's ready for a, a big performance, and I think that could be it. It'll be very interesting to see. Andy Murray's quarter of the draw in the bottom half of the draw. He starts off against the Japanese player Tatsuma Ito. Have you ever heard much about him before? I haven't heard much about him. 69th in the world, so he's got to be handy. They've never played before. Um so I'd imagine Ivan Lendl's doing a bit of doing a bit of research as we speak. Yeah, round three's interesting though. The young Australian Bernard Tomic, be interesting. Anyway, I, I still think he'll come through personally, Andy Murray. I think he'll also get his revenge against Richard Gasquet if they have to play in the fourth round. Of course, uh, Gasquet beat uh, Murray in the Rome tournament recently. God, I'm, I'm right behind Murray here, aren't I? I've got him into the quarterfinals. He's playing against David Straight Ferrer or John Isner. One of the two. In fact, I think he's going to win that too. Actually, if it's David Ferrer, you have to say he's an absolute nightmare to play on a, on a clay court, even for Andy Murray. Finally, the uh, the other quarter of the draw is involves Rafael Nadal, and he's got uh, Simone Bolelli to start off with. Can't see too many problems there. Denis Istomin maybe in the second round. Ivo Karlovic in round three. That ain't much fun. And the same thing applies to round four. Milos Raonic against uh, Rafael Nadal. Well, Raonic fears nobody. He fears nobody. No, which is which is a very powerful uh, weapon to have. Oh. I still couldn't see Raonic winning that, but I could see it going to four. You know, Isner took Rafa to five sets last year, didn't he? First person to do that since uh, since Soderling, um, the year he lost, obviously. So I could see something like that happening there, but I I just can't see Rafa losing before the. I can't see him losing before the final, really. You can't see him losing. Let's be honest. You've predicted Rafael I've, Nadal for the title. No, I've done it now. I've got to back up my prediction, haven't I? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's the men's draw. The women's draw, uh, we'll just have a quick look at that as well. There's a, a few notable ones there. At Victoria Azarenka, of course, the top seed is uh, up against potentially Samantha Stosa in the quarterfinals if they both get that far. Stosa will start against Britain's Elena Baltaccia. A couple of really interesting matches really involve Serena Williams, if, if, if it all pans out. She could play Caroline Wozniacki in round four, and then really one of the form players this year so far, Maria Sharapova in the quarters. Yeah, that that's going to be the one that everyone's anticipating right from the start of the tournament, I think. Maria Sharapova really showing some good form on, on clay this year. I mean, her game isn't naturally suited to it. She isn't. She isn't the smoothest mover around the tennis court, but she really seems to have pulled everything uh, everything together. Her serve um, is uh, a lot more solid than than it has been in in past couple of years, and 
that you could flip a coin for that one i think i what do you think i think that serena williams is going to go all the way personally wow. i think she's going to go all the way to the final the way she dismissed victoria azarenka re recently who who I think is the real deal as a world number one, and yet mm. she was smashed off the court. I don't think she's 100% at the moment, Azarenka, so you, you've got to have that as a caveat. But I think Serena looks in, in great, great shape at the moment. Let's have a prediction. Come on, French Open women's fi final is going to be between who? Women's final. Well, go on then. I'm going to go against you. If you're predicting Serena, I'm going to go for Sharapova. And... In the other half, I'm going to go for Azarenka. I know she's carrying a bit of a wrist injury, but I th her movement is just sensational. And I think on the clay, um, I can't see anybody in that top half beating her. I think Marion Bartley could cause us some problems, um, but I'm predicting a Sharapova-Azarenka final repeat of Australia. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This edition of the Tennis Podcast is sponsored by Tennis Channel and Tennis Channel Plus is the place to watch the French Open. They've got every court live and you can watch on your phone or your smart TV, both in HD. Matt, this sounds like your kind of thing. Yeah, there's nothing I like more than watching multiple courts with matches everywhere, dipping in to where there's the latest final set tie break or even the latest bit of aggro. And David, don't worry, you can just watch your favourite court, Suzanne Longlen, all day if you want. But whatever you choose, the French Open promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Do you know, I think in a lot of ways, the French Open is now my favourite slam. It's the strategy of the clay court tennis, the way it challenges players, and particularly now with legends of the game up against a new generation of young players. I cannot wait. Be there when it happens with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Subscribe to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code TENNISPOD20 for 20% off your annual subscription. Yeah, with, the, with the winner being? I'll go for Sharapova. I'm going for Azarenka against Serena Williams in the final with Serena Williams doing the same to her which she did a few weeks ago and winning the title. What a story that would be. Serena Williams, French Open champion We've out of nowhere. We've laid our necks on the line here. Wow. Well, there you have it here on the Tennis Podcast. And uh, do feel free to uh, write in your predictions on Twitter to at Tennis Podcast and we'll have a little look at those, have a laugh at you if you got it wrong. Do say now though, please, but before the tournament starts or before it gets too far because we want you to lay your necks on the line as well and don't be afraid to give me some stick if I've got it wrong, which I won't have done. 
Let's have a chat with Carlos Moya, shall we? Because he's our special guest, our big interview here this week. And he was talking to Catherine Whitaker uh, very recently. And first of all, Catherine asked him what it's like for Carlos Moya these days, aged 35. I can say I'm pretty busy right now. I'm still traveling a few weeks with the Champions Tour, playing some exhibitions. Then I opened a, an academy, a tennis academy in, in Madrid with uh, my friends Carretero and Jacobo Diaz, former pro players. I'm commentating a few tournaments for Canal Plus in Spain. I had a daughter, uh, she's 20 months now and keeps me very busy. And helping to the to the Madrid, uh, Mutua Madrid Open. I'm co-director, helping the organization and, and the players. So that's how my life, is, my life is right now. You mentioned your daughter, Carla, that obviously parenthood is something that's really changed you. Is that a level of fulfillment that you, know, you never got on a tennis court or from anything else in your life? Yeah, it's a different feeling, of course. Uh, you responsi- responsibility and... Uh, you're, you change so many things you know, now your baby is first on top of everything you know so uh, it's a great feeling and there is something that I was having on court that you cannot get outside which is the adrenaline of, of playing a final in, in, in a full stadium uh, playing a third set tiebreak this adrenaline is something that I'm getting it right now playing this tour but being a father is a totally different story and, and uh, you know it's, it's the best thing ever happened to me Probably the first major highlight of your career was reaching the Australian Open final, aged just 20. What are your memories of, of that run to the final and, and that tournament, being so young? Well, it was turning point in my life, in my career. Uh, I left Spain. Uh, I wasn't known at all. Uh, people only know me, knew me, only tennis players, you know. And, and when I came back, suddenly everything changed for me. <laughs> it was only two weeks, but... Uh, was unbelievable. I have great memories. Best memories I've ever had is from these two weeks. And I remember playing Boris Becker first round. He was defending champion, and I beat him. And suddenly, I got all the attention from everybody. And then uh, I got to the final. I beat Chang in the semifinals. He was number two in the world. It was great. The last time that the Spaniard got to the final in Australia was 30 years before. And hardcore was, uh, you know, was not our best surface. So, uh, you know, it was big in Spain what I did, and uh, it changed my life totally. You were on the Jay Leno show yeah. after that run to the final. I mean, you must have been sitting there thinking, "Wow, you know, life has really changed." How did you, how did you deal with all of that change? Yeah, it was like these three weeks when I came back home. I mean, it was a different world for me <laughs> because in that time uh, you didn't have internet like now and so you, you you didn't know how I mean my parents were telling me that it was crazy in Spain but you know I didn't know exactly what was going on until I got back home uh, when I was at the airport and so many people waiting for me and then uh, I was getting uh, so many awards and, and people wanted to have pictures with me and see, signing autographs you know and three weeks before I was nobody I mean uh, <laughs> they didn't recognize me at all and and then going to the States, being in the Jay Leno show, uh, which is, was the biggest show that in, in the States, and it was an unbelievable feeling. Uh, let's talk about the 98 French Open. Just talk me <coughs> through your memories of that, that whole two weeks and from, from start to finish, and, and obviously the, the mid- winning moment. Talk me through your experience of those two weeks, obviously big ones in your life. 
Yeah, it was obviously a great feeling. I was coming from winning Monte Carlo, and the tradition says that who wins Monte Carlo has a, a good chance to win the to win the French Open. So, uh, you know, I, I was ready for it. I think the the key match in that tournament was when I beat Rios in the quarters. Rios was coming from being number one in the world, and he won Miami Indian Wells. So he was uh, the favorite, and I never beat him before. So uh, I think that that match uh, gave me the tournament. Then I played uh, Mantilla in semifinal. It was a very tough match, and Correcha in the final. So uh, uh, the one that I think gave me the uh, motivation, and I think it was uh, against Rios, was in four sets, and it's probably the best match I ever played. And when you were standing there match point up, against Correcha in the final. Can you remember what was going through your head? <laughs> no, really. It's so many things. I mean, you don't realize what, you, what you've what just done until a few weeks later. You know, it's a dream since I was a kid. Suddenly it becomes true, you know, and, and you have all your family there and, and friends came from Mallorca, my team, uh, in front of 15,000 people in, in, in the in, on the court and... It's a great feeling. It's you cannot describe that with words. You have to leave that. And but uh, you realize uh, maybe a couple of weeks later what what you've done. And now the next year at Roland Garros, you're defending <coughs> champion. So obviously you've got all the pressure that goes with that. And you run into Andre Agassi, mm. who's at the beginning of his comeback, I suppose <coughs> you'd call it. What are your memories of that match against Andre? Well, I remember the first round I beat. He felt I was two sets down. I was defending champion, so I opened the tournament in the center court. I was so nervous. I was two sets down, and I was able to, to come back. And then I won a couple of good matches. Then was Andre in the last 16. And I thought I was the favorite. Andre was not uh, in his playing his favorite tournament, his favorite surface. He was more a hardcore player. And I was 6-4 for one up, serving. And suddenly I, I started to think that uh, I've already won the match and uh, I relaxed a little bit, lost focus and, and you know he came back and then I could not do anything. And he was playing very well and suddenly I was not playing that well and, and he beat me then he won the tournament. I think that could have been my second, my second Grand Slam because uh, then he played Philippines in the quarters which uh, I never lost before. I think was at bat in the semi-final and Medvedev in the final. Uh, I think was the job was okay because uh, I like to play to play this play. You never know what can happen, but uh, I think uh, that could have been my second Grand Slam that never. The came. one that got away. Yeah. But later that year, you did have perhaps the other pinnacle of your career, which is reaching world number one. I remember when when you when you did win the match that took you to world number one. There were scenes of you dancing on the court with your team. <laughs> you must have been pretty sure that that you had reached world number one but you, when the rankings came out on the Monday did you still have a look just to make double sure? Well, you have a look of course <laughs> and you check and, and it's great to have this number one number next to your name uh, you see uh, behind you you see Sampra, you see Rafter you see Agassi, you see all these guys big names that you know, it's, it was something, and I was also first Spanish ever to to reach the number one ranking in the world. So, since the first day, to be honest, in Indian Wells, I knew that getting to the final would give me the number one because uh, I was number four, I think. But I, there were four players having a chance to be number one: Sampras, Rafter, and Correcha, I think. And all of them lost first round. So, uh, uh, was pretty easy to calculate, you know. And I knew that if I was getting to the final since the first day, uh, I was 
gonna become number one. But that put me a lot of pressure also, you know, and since the first days. And then I had Guga in the semifinal that I never beat him before, and it was uh, very tense, but also very emotional. You know, it was uh, probably the biggest goal that I have achieved. You've possibly already answered this question, but with everything that you did achieve, are you almost surprised that you didn't win win more major titles, more Grand Slams? Well, uh, I'm being asked this question many times, but uh, I, of course I could have won maybe another one. But I see the names that uh, share my best years, and Samba was there, Agassi, uh, Rafter, Cuerten, uh, Ferrero, Rios, Kafelnikov, Enquist, uh, Filipusis, uh, I'm forgetting so many, uh, Ivanisevic. So, you know, I don't know if uh, I was better than them. I'm not sure. Uh, probably not. So I, I won one, which was my goal. Probably if, uh, if I had another mentality, maybe I could have won more. I don't know. Because uh, I, I like to enjoy what I achieved. You know, I try not to think about what uh, I didn't win. You know, then you you get crazy if you I always remember. You always remember that I prefer to concentrate and focus on what I've won. And as I said, uh, that period was was tough. So many good players, and and you know, maybe the French Open was the only real chance for me to win a Grand Slam. Then I played final in Australia and, and semi-final in the US Open. But there were big names there, and I don't think I was better than them. You talked about your generation. Of course, you you played into sort of the current generation: Nadal, Djokovic, Federer. When you look at the top four at the moment, is it difficult not to say that this is the best generation ever, or are you one of those that don't really believe in comparing it's, generations? It's difficult to compare generations. Uh, as in, it's not easy to know if this top four. I would say the top three. Uh, because Murray didn't win a slam uh, so I don't think he still belong, belong to to this this top three guys and it's hard to compare but I, you never know if, if they, these four guys are too good or the rest of the guys are not that good so uh, nobody can tell you that also I think that the surface is being similar uh, it helps because uh, before when uh, you have hardcore players, you have grass, uh, grass court players, you have clay court players, and now you they are they can play any surface. I, I think because the the course is much slower and the balls are bigger and heavier, so probably the best guy wins no matter what surface it is. Before you, the four guys that were reaching the semifinals in in Paris uh, were losing second round in Wimbledon. That the the game was totally different. So. It, I'm not a big fan of comparing errors. As somebody that you're very close to, Rafa, I'm, I, along with, I hope, a lot of other people, I'm guilty every year of thinking he cannot possibly keep this level up. The, the, the labour intensiveness of his mm. play and you know, the, the, the well-documented problems with his knees and everything and, and the level of competition out there. And then every year he, he keeps it up, if not mm. betters himself. How long, really, can he? Can, do you think he can keep this level up? I think he can be a few more years for sure. I mean, he's such a fighter. His mentality is uh, probably the best, the best tennis player ever in terms of mentality, and also his fitness is unbelievable. So, and also 
he, he, he has he has some talent also he, he he's very good and you cannot compare him to Federer Federer probably is the most talented guy ever to pick up a racket so uh, I think uh, Rafa still has a chance to to win a few more Grand Slams was a shame that Djokovic appeared last year and and he beat him seven, in seven finals so you never know what, what could happen with Rafa without Djokovic but uh, he's there it's a new challenge for him and and he always found a way, a solution to overcome these these challenges and these problems. Uh, he beat Federer when Federer was unbeatable. Now there's a new challenge for him, which is to beat and be better than Djokovic. And, and I think he's slowly he's finding the solution. So uh, he's going to be there for a few more years. I'm sure of that. French Open coming up, obviously. There's the top four. So much talked about. Obviously, they're the clear favourites. In particular, Djokovic and Nadal. <coughs> Do you see anybody outside of that top four with a with an outside chance of either making a run to the final or or even winning it? I think one one thing is get to the final, and a different thing is to win it. For a guy outside the top four to win a Grand Slam right now, or even a Master Thousand event, probably has to beat three out of these four top players. So that's something that. I don't think it's going to happen. If you're lucky, maybe you have to beat just two of them because the other one maybe lost in the early runs. But for a guy like Ferrer or Songa or Del Potro, probably they have to beat Federer in the quarters, uh, Nadal in the semi-final, Djokovic in the final. So that's, some, that's something that I don't think that's going to happen these days. But uh, if there is a guy that I think he can do that if he's 100%, it's Del Potro. I think he, maybe not in Paris, probably more, more chances in, in the US Open, I think. Maybe Songa. Wimbledon, but at the French, I don't see uh, anybody uh, winning the the trophy outside these top four guys. Maybe getting to the final, but I don't think uh, winning it. And of those top four, who are you picking? If you had to make a prediction, I would go for Rafa. Uh, he's won six already. Um, there is something special for him in, the, in that court. He only lost once and. and because he had another issues, and I think when he gets his magical, that's cool for him. Along with Monte Carlo and Barcelona, he he's unbeatable probably there. And you know, know with Djokovic for sure it would be a great final. But best of five and, and in Paris, uh, I would bet for, uh, for Rafa. I wish. <laughs> So Carlos has gone for Rafael Nadal. We've gone for him too. So what about you? Let us know on at Tennis Podcast on Twitter. We'll be back in a week's time to see how the French Open's panning out and to talk to another big name from inside tennis. Next week, it's the 2004 French Open champion Gaston Gaudio. Until then, enjoy the clay and talk to you next week here on the Tennis Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 